0: Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing.
1: Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glasgow at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm joined by our co-host, Susan Walker of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Good morning, Bill. How are you? Good.
2: Interesting topic we have today.
1: We're ready to rock and roll because today we're returning to an aspect of working from home that's creating buzz everywhere there are vacant or partially vacant offices. How do you convert those buildings into housing to revive flagging downtowns and protect city tax revenues? We certainly see this happening in Manhattan's traditional financial district, now rechristened as FIDI, where a Whole Foods, of all things, has suddenly taken root at the base of the former Bank of New York Tower at the corner of Broadway and Wall Street. Who would have thunk it? And while there may still be bankers living in the condos above, chances are very good that they're also up there working from their apartments at least part of the time. Now, we'll hear all about that in a moment, but first, a few quick words. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, and also on the Special Briefing podcast. As usual, we've taken your questions in advance, and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, Special Briefing is made possible with the generous support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. Our thanks to you all. So, as I said, let's get down to business. Leading off our great expert panel today is New York City's Deputy Mayor for Economic and Workforce Development, Maria Torres Springer. She's spearheading the Adams administration plan to turn those empty offices into housing, especially affordable housing. We're really honored and thanks so much for joining us today, Deputy Mayor. Along with the Deputy Mayor, please welcome a frequent guest to these mics, Professor Stan von Nierenberg of Columbia's Business School here in New York. Next, we'll hear from Heather Long, who tracks the conversion story at the Washington Post editorial board. And finally, urban planning guru Amy Cotter of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy in Cambridge, Mass. As I said, Deputy Mayor, we're so glad to have you with us today. There's a new report out from New York City on this subject, which is posted to our websites. So tell us, please, tell us all about the conversion plan and what it will take to make it work.
3: Well, good morning to everyone. Thank you, Bill. And thank you to the Volcker Alliance for having me this morning. Thank you, Susan. I am so thrilled to be part of this conversation about this opportunity. And I think many cities, many municipalities across the country really have at their fingertips, which is to revitalize downtowns through the conversion of a vacant office space into homes, homes that are desperately needed from every corner of our country, given the housing crisis that this country is facing. I thought I'd start by talking first about why it is important to us to revitalize our downtowns, our core employment hubs, and to address this issue of office vacancy, and then turn to exactly how it is that we are going about doing that with partners here in New York. So um, it's probably no surprise to any of the listeners that our central business districts here in New York are so critical to our economy. Our core employment hubs, Midtown Manhattan, Lower Manhattan, Long Island City, downtown Brooklyn, they are home to more than 50% of our jobs in New York and direct and sublet office real estate in Midtown and Lower Manhattan, for instance, represent about 80% of all New York City office space. Midtown Manhattan is particularly important. It represents, of course, the highly concentrated set of global businesses. It is key to our ability to attract global talent. And it's really the anchor of our critical tourism industry. And a lot of ink has been spilled since the pandemic about vacancy rates and how a lot of office buildings in particular, the more obsolete office buildings have been struggling in terms of reaching occupancy levels that existed before the pandemic. And so uh, this is important to tackle, not just because of the vitality of the central business districts, which we of course care about, but because of impacts to our tax base, of course. And when we came into office, Under the leadership of Mayor Eric Adams, we knew that the city was really at a crossroads, that the pandemic upended how and where we work, that it damaged our business districts and really laid bare harmful disparities amongst the city's residents, which have been ignored for far too long. And so we went about asking ourselves a number of questions, which on one hand, are tactical, on the other hand, also pretty existential about the future, not just of our CBDs, but of our economy. Questions like, how are we going to respond to this large shift in the way people work and consume and live? And how would our central business districts therefore evolve to meet these new needs and changing preferences? So our we knew that the response to that couldn't just be about well-meaning public servants talking to one another, that we really needed those set of solutions to be comprehensive and to be expert driven. So both the mayor of New York City and the governor of New York, in really a historic partnership, the type that hasn't been seen, in my opinion, in this region for about half a century, convened a panel of 60 experts from across different sectors, what we call the new New York panel to really help us answer these questions. And what became pretty clear is that the question that we were trying to answer wasn't just one about our central business districts. It was about the future of our economy. So the work of that panel led to 40 very concrete initiatives under three goals. And I'll obviously focus on one given the topic of today's conversation, transforming what had been relatively single-use business districts into great places where people can live, work, and play. The second, improving commutes into Manhattan while making sure that we were strengthening employment hubs across the five boroughs. And three, supporting the growth of jobs and innovation and really breaking down barriers to economic mobility for our people, because as much as we want to talk about these issues of issues of bricks and mortar and office space and real estate, fundamentally, we all knew that this had to be about New Yorkers and human beings being able not just to recover from the pandemic, but to thrive in its wake. So specific to ensuring that we were really creating and supporting 24-7 mixed-use districts was this idea of facilitating the conversion of office space, in particular, obsolete office space into homes, because we think there is tremendous potential here. In particular, and this is work that we did together through this panel and with our local city council in a a major report as well that we put out with more of the specifics about this opportunity that we could actually bring to the market approximately 20,000 new homes over the course of the next decade. That's tens of thousands of New Yorkers who would have access to more homes if we facilitated this type of conversion. And so what does that really mean? Well, first I'll say it's an important tool, but it would not be successful if we didn't also pay the attention that we are paying to issues of public safety, issues of quality of life, issues of improving public space in neighborhoods. So we're doing that as well. But the conversion of our office space is one that requires extraordinary partnership, both locally and at the state level. And we believe that this can be a true win-win for a number of reasons. Obviously, it's important for the activation of our central business districts. It's important to address office vacancy. Very importantly, it's critical to meaningfully tackling our housing crisis. The numbers, and I've spent a lot of time in the housing industry over different roles in government, the, the statistics that underlie our housing crisis in New York City are heartbreaking. And for too long, we have not made a dent on those statistics. They include the fact that we have a vacancy rate of less than 5%, but only 1% of our homes are available for rent below 1500 a month. We have more than 70,000 people who sleep in shelters at night, and more than half of our renters are rent burdened. So, we all knew that we had to actually stop trafficking in the language of this crisis and really taking the bold steps that are needed in order to address the crisis. So, the mayor put out what we've been calling our moonshot goal of building 500,000 homes, new homes, over the course of the next decade, which essentially doubles the rate of housing production in our city. And we'll do that by number one, building faster. And so we've identified more than 100 regulations and processes that we need to improve so that it is faster and less costly to build in the city. We need to build everywhere, in every borough, in every neighborhood, because this is a shared crisis and therefore the solutions have to be shared by every single community. And importantly, and and relevant to the topic of today's conversation, we have to build together. And by together, what I mean is that partners, the city council and partners in Albany, because so much of what needs to be modified, what needs to be lifted or relaxed, requires state legislation. We need to work together with our partners there. And it's a very, very important week given those negotiations in Albany. The changes that we are looking for include the types of regulations that need to be modified to our multiple dwelling slot to enable this type of conversion in the city, an accompanying tax incentive to facilitate that type of conversion. We're asking for the lifting of what have been artificial caps on how much density we can build in many parts of the city. We are looking for the type of not just extension of a previous tax incentive, the old 421A program, so that those units that are in the pipeline, and there are about 30,000 of them, can actually be brought to market. But for the replacement of that program with one that makes sense, because the 421A program has been critical for the production of rental housing. And in particular, two-thirds of all rental units that have been built in the city since 2016 took advantage of that incentive. So that gives you a picture of the type of changes that we need from Albany and from our partners in the state legislature. But make no mistake about it, and this is where I'll pause, this is the type of work that no one level of government or no one sector of our economy can do alone. It is a model for what public-private partnership needs to look like, and it's what's needed given the crises that we are facing in this city. But despite the converging crises that we've really had to try to overcome, I'm very bullish about the future of New York City. You know, at different points in our history, we made choices. And by we, I mean policy makers, civic leaders, the business community, we made choices that changed the course of our history the lives of our people and the fate of our industries. And we're at that point again today where we have to make those courageous choices so that um, we're able to, as I mentioned earlier, not just recover from the pandemic, but really thrive in its wake. And so I hope that's helpful to give a little bit of an overview of the work that we are doing here in, in New York City. And again, I appreciate um the time and space here to talk about this critical work.
1: Thank you so much, Deputy Mayor. Stick with us. We're going to turn to Stanley Nirenberg, who tracks the economics of all this, and we're at kind of a a rocky time, especially as far as banks go and real estate financing. So how realistic is the mayor's plan, and what do you see happening in the next few years?
4: Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks a lot for having me back. Like you said, I think the office market in the U.S. is in a pretty tight spot, and sort of the way I view it is there's A perfect storm brewing of three headwinds one is much higher long-term interest rates they've moved up by about 200 basis points relative to the averages we had in the five years before the pandemic remote work number two which created anemic leasing activity of vacant space weak lease renewal activity of existing tenants many of whom are consolidating space and then the prospect of a recession has accelerated that trend towards office reduction I think the office vacancy rate as a result has been creeping up. In San Francisco, for example, it's 30% right now, up from 5% before the pandemic. And net effective rent levels are weakening because of this general weakness in the office market. So, you know, prospects for normal rent growth levels that we would, that we used to enjoy in office are, are dim. And, you know, to add insult to injury, the incidence of non-payment of rent may be rising if indeed we are hitting a recession. The third headwind I see is transition risk from green uh, building legislation. You know, a lot of municipalities have committed to be net zero by 2050, some even earlier. And several of them have, you know, levied or planning to levy financial fines for non-compliant buildings, including in cities like New York, San Francisco and D.C. So all of these three factors are hitting the office market all at once. They're hitting all of the office market, including the very best offices, the class A plus base, but they're hitting the class B and class C older office stock much harder. So sort of according to a simple pro forma model that I've been working on in the last few days, these sort of headwinds combine to reduce the value of a generic class B office building in Manhattan by about 70%. Okay, so that's a big number. 40% of that is just coming from interest rates alone without any cash flows local law 97 by my calculations reduces values by 6% and remote work takes care of the rest. These numbers are consistent with a more rigorous analysis that I've done in my office real estate apocalypse paper which I've discussed in past forums. So all of that is before the banking crisis before which which I believe that, you know, because it's regional banks that are so central to the commercial real estate finance ecosystem, you know, the trouble in the regional banks will spill over to commercial real estate, and my mind will lead to a credit crunch, sort of even if there's no further fallout from more banks getting in trouble. Just the regulatory burden and the supervision increase is going to make banks reluctant to lend, especially on office assets in the future. So all of that will sort of aggravate these issues. So Long story short, we're in a very difficult spot and office to apartment conversions are a very natural solution for the reasons that you outlined at the at the outset. And, and I think the plan of the mayor and the vice mayor of New York that we just heard about, I think, is a phenomenal initiative and it rightly sets these conversions at the center of it. But sort of the question I have is, do these office conversions actually work out? Right. So a lot has been written about the physical and the regulatory obstacles. The New York Times recently did a very nice visualization of the physical challenges of converting offices with a large floor plate, too little lights too little air. So let me not dwell on that. The regulatory barriers have also received a lot of attention. I applaud the mayor for taking a close look at a hundred different uh, pieces of, of rules and regulations and how they may be changed to accommodate such conversions what I want to focus on today is the financial viability of these conversions because I believe at the end of the day there's plenty of buildings that are good candidates for conversion you know I've been working on sort of selecting which good buildings might be you know it's easy to find let's call it 500 brown, Office buildings in Manhattan, Midtown and downtown Manhattan, built before 1960 that are class B and class C with the right floor plates and, you know, that are energy inefficient. I can easily identify about 10 million square feet or about 10,000 apartments that could be built in that space. But the question is, are these conversions financially viable? And the work I've been doing suggests that they're not, at least not in a purely market solution. And that's somewhat surprising because, you know, in these conversions, what you're effectively doing is you're taking an asset that maybe collects $4 in rent per square foot per month in a Class B office building, and you're turning into a beautiful green apartment building that collects maybe $8 per square foot per month, twice the amount, plus enjoys stronger rent growth, plus enjoys lower vacancy, plus enjoys energy cost savings from running the building, plus doesn't get hit by local law 97 fines. Plus, gets favorable construction and permanent financing from lenders that are eager to make sustainable loans, plus, de risks the investment. And still, the numbers do not work, even if you can buy the property at a 70% discount from pre pandemic valuations. Now, why is that? Well, because it's expensive to do these conversions, you know, about $400 per square foot, because financing has become very expensive with higher interest rates. And so ultimately, the numbers don't end up working out. You can earn about a 7% IRR by my calculations for a typical conversion project, but that's not enough given the risk of such a, a risky project. And so what do we need to do? We need to bring in the government to help subsidize this. And I think there's a precedent for this. 421G in 1995 was sort of a very similar program that had property tax abatements to stimulate conversions, about 12,000 apartments were built in the mid to late 1990s under that program. And uh, we could do this again, you know, sort of a modest tax abatement. Think about it as a property tax rate that gets lowered from three and a half to 2.6% would be enough to make the numbers work out. Or you can have sort of a tax abatement at sort of pre redevelopment levels for a few years that would also do the trick. Right, So I think there are sort of easy financial solutions, mm-hmm. and make no mistake, this is a win-win for the public and the private sector. We turn the corner and start building much needed housing. At the same time, the government will generate a lot more tax revenue from this because the tax revenue is gonna be falling dramatically from these old office buildings that are losing value. Right, So once we market these buildings to market over time, tax revenue, New York City is looking at much lower tax revenue from these office buildings. And so replacing that with a better tax revenue stream in an apartment is smart policy. So in short, let me stop here. There's basically lots of properties that are good candidates and they are economic models that can work, but a pure market solution will not do the trick. The numbers just don't work out. So we need to work together, public-private partnership to make this work. And you know, maybe the federal government comes in here as well. There's A $22 billion EPA fund under the Inflation Reduction Act that, in my reading, could potentially be tapped to subsidize some of this brown office to green apartment conversion as well. So that's another good source to look at.
1: Thanks, Dan. The numbers are fascinating. And that's what our audience has been asking about. So you've hit it right on the head. And I'm moving to Wall Street right away. And this is a reminder that you're tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. The archived editions of this and all of our past special briefings can be found on our websites or on the special briefing podcast. And let's not waste time because we're running a little behind schedule. Let's welcome Susan Wachter back with our next guest, Susan.
2: Thank you so much, Dan. This is exactly the kinds of analysis we need, and not just in New York, but other places, including Washington, D.C., which brings us to Heather Long, who is on the editorial board of the Washington Post. And Heather, you've been thinking about these issues, not just for Washington, but beyond. Please give us your insights.
5: Thanks, Susan. So, the Washington Post, we are located right in downtown DC on K Street, just close to the White House. And we got interested in these issues partly out of self interest. Just we are one of those companies that's doing hybrid. Our staff are required generally to be in the office three days a week. So, but it feels pretty dead downtown DC and certainly at the Washington Post, dead in the sense in the office on certainly on Mondays and Fridays. So, the food trucks are gone, the tents have picked up in a lot of the parks right around the Washington Post. So like many people, we started to say, what needs to happen here? We wrote very aggressively in 2022 to try to urge the federal government to bring more workers back to the office. That was met with a lot of upset readers who did not want to go back to the office. And we kind of began to track the data like everybody else and realized that January of this year 2023 has been the peak for most cities in return to office, including Washington, D.C. So it's gotten a little better, but the steady state is is just not moving up any further. So I think what's interesting about Washington, D.C. is we have, like a lot of U.S. cities, the downtown area, so I'm speaking about right by the White House, is over 90% commercial buildings. So it's just a phenomenal... Concentration that's very different even from some of the other neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., where it's a little bit closer to 50 50, like the area around Union Station. If anybody's taken the Amtrak recently to D.C., that area has grown a lot in the last 10 years. It's called Noma and it's now much more of a mixed use area. So, Washington, D.C., partly at the urging of the Washington Post and many others in the community, has put out the mayor has put out a really strong comeback plan. It's over 100 pages is long it's similar to the New York City and the San Francisco plan so it's great to see a lot of cities really putting concrete ideas out there in the DC context the mayor Muriel Bowser has become known for putting a, a concrete number she wants 15,000 new residents downtown in the next 5 years. So that's a very aggressive target, but I saw in some of the questions that people have sent in, some have asked, is it wise idea to put out a number like that, 15,000 in 5 years? We really like that at the Washington Post. We think it really helps rally the public around this idea. It also helps to then do the kind of modeling that Stan has was talking about. So what does 15,000 look like in concrete terms? That means 7 million square feet of office would have to convert to residential. Right now, the city of D.C., what we're seeing from what developers have already purchased or indicated they intend to purchase and convert is only about 1 million. So we are 1 million out of 7 million square feet goal. There's a long, long way to go. I think the other parts of the D.C. plan that I would just highlight really briefly. The second one is it's more than residential. Residential is a key part of it, for sure. particularly in an area like in Center City, D.C., where it's 90% commercial right now. But the firm, the architectural firm Gensler, has done a lot of analysis in D.C. and for cities around the country about the, how likely a building could be converted. For D.C. and for most cities, they say the reality is at max... of these office buildings are logical candidates to be converted to residential. So you've got to say, what do we do with over half of these other buildings that for financial or structural reasons are probably not going to be viable? DC is really lucky because we've seen huge growth in universities. So I think Cities around the country are looking also for what can these anchor institutions do beyond apartment buildings. For us, we've seen huge growth from Johns Hopkins University is renovating a huge museum right between the White House and Congress. The old museums for the media, News Media Museum that failed, is now being converted by Johns Hopkins. We also have Georgetown and GW universities, who are kind of the other side of downtown, and they have been expanding their footprint as well. The mayor's plan and this comeback plan also includes a push to hopefully bring more biotech industries, as well as, of course, traditional think tanks and expanding those in DC. So I think across the country, smart city leaders are saying, what other institutions and what other types of buildings can we convert? The other thing I'll just speak briefly about is parks and amenities. This is also part of the DC plan and many of the other plans in other cities. I really like the 10-minute walk initiative that Atlanta is pushing, this notion that everyone should live within a 10-minute walk. D.C. is lucky that we have a lot of parks already, so ours that is not so much of a challenge. But a number of other cities, including Atlanta, you know, have done analyses that show that only 70% of their residents are within 10-minute walk of a park. So you're trying to, as you convert all these areas that used to be in these offices, think about the other amenities. Usually what cities find is things like grocery stores, will come after you start to have the concentration of residents. But things like parks, you got to think ahead about. The last thing I'll just toss out there is, and the questions people sent in, somebody asked about other cities beyond the coasts and how they're dealing with these problems. Washington Post, we just, the U.S. Conference of Mayors was in D.C. in January, and we had a chance to meet with dozens of mayors. And I can tell you the only mayor I met with, who did not have a crisis on their hand with this office, Residential conversion was Milwaukee so good for Milwaukee but everybody else was in the same boat I'm talking Lincoln Nebraska Burlington Vermont Stanford Connecticut Waterloo Iowa Richmond Virginia so from big to small Phoenix Austin this is definitely the top of mind for mayors across the country obviously in some cities like a Waterloo Iowa some of it is not so much office building conversions as it is mall conversions and malls are even harder because the floor print is even Even less likely to be a good residential candidate. One of the other things I'll just throw out that as I've started to tour a lot of buildings in D.C. and elsewhere to look at what can possibly be converted with architects and developers. One of the things that really stands out to me is um, not just the, you know, the physics of can you make this conversion, but it's really a question of also what is the most environmentally friendly thing to do, and. One of the big debates is whether you knock buildings down or not, and whether it's more financially and economically, as well as environmentally sustainable to retain the existing exterior of a building or not. So I think a lot of cities are going to focus on that. Um, lastly, on the tax abatement side, D.C. has put out an initial tax abatement plan, which would be similar to what Stan was outlining for New York. It would be a 20-year tax abatement. However, that would come with the need to do 15% affordable housing, and about a third a requirement to hire local contractors. We have written that we think generally this is a good plan. However, it's going to be very, very tough in the interest rate environment that we are in, and given the vast need of buildings that need to be converted to achieve all of those and goals. I've talked to many, many developers, certainly in the DC context, and the vibe that I am getting, having looked at many of their spreadsheets on how make different buildings converted, is they can definitely do affordable housing. Sure, they would prefer to do 8% affordable instead of 15%, but there is a number on affordable housing that is very doable. They know how to model that. They know how to make it work. The harder one and the one that gets more pushback is the requirement to hire local contractors. And so I think cities around the country are really having those trade-off debates. Is our first priority affordable housing and these conversions to residential? or do we have other priorities thanks
2: well thank you so much that was terrific and now we are turning to amy cutter of the lincoln institute of land policy and amy is absolutely in your wheelhouse what happens to taxation and taxation land and tax abatement how is your thinking on this overall issue and how what are the ways forward
6: sure thank you susan i want to thank susan and bill and everybody who's helped to produce today's webinar and you know my fellow panelists have offered a lot of fascinating insight and i i hope to build on and build on their remarks the lincoln institute does have a long history working on property taxation i bring a more urban planners perspective to the work and work in cities i want to amplify what my fellow panelists have said it is not too soon for any central business district to start thinking about how it responds to a decline in their office market. And I would suggest that the first things they can do is to avoid deterioration and further um, destabilization of the districts in which there is a a preponderance of office uses. Regardless of hopes or plans for the reuse of the buildings, we've heard it's not always going to be housing by dint of feasibility. Areas of decline, whether they're preponderance of office or not, with less life on the street will only further discourage tenants from renting space in those buildings and will only discourage redeveloper from seeing that an opportunity in the redevelopment of a building so cities should take immediate action to maintain the public realm we've heard about the importance of park space we've heard about new york boston san francisco a lot of cities are activating those public realms and bringing people to places that might otherwise be desolate all times of day. I think there's also opportunity to help provide tenants and activate vacant first floors That might be a good way to support otherwise struggling small businesses, the number of which really exploded during the pandemic. I think cities can also connect with those building owners, building managers. There needs to be open communication and understanding of the struggles that the existing building owners and managers are facing. They need to be supported in their maintenance of those buildings. They need to be held accountable for the maintenance of those buildings so that they don't contribute to deterioration of the district writ large. As the city is forming those relationships with building owners and managers, I'd encourage them to think about the ways in which they can support the transformations that are needed. They may find themselves in a facilitation role, which I think is actually a very good position for the city to take, facilitating matchmaking even, or simply an understanding of the flexibility that they need to bring into the role in order to make a new life, for historic or somewhat obsolete areas. As those cities contemplate a way to transform blocks, cities, they need to find formal and informal ways to be flexible. We've heard some ways in which the cities on the call and otherwise are doing that, but diversifying the uses in a place, whether it's by bringing in housing or other uses is essential and facilitating innovation, creativity, and yes, deals, between the private sector and existing landowners are critical. Calgary has done that with what they call a downtown strategy team that works closely to not bend the rules, but to think and embrace flexibility as they achieve city objectives in different ways, in ways that often allow developers to find ways that they can accomplish city objectives without the prescriptions and in ways that help make the economics work better. For cities that want to diversify their office stock, the first thing to do is make sure that it's allowed. Make sure that uses other than office are allowed. And there's already a pendulum swing away from single-use Euclidean zoning districts in cities across the U.S., but if if you don't already allow mixed use in your central business district, the time has come to look into doing that. It may not take a full formal rezoning process to do that. It could be that there is an overlay district or a special district that could form to do that. Other ways that cities can take steps to allow flexibility that can expand The buildings that are eligible and improve the economics for developers are, as we heard in New York, improve floor area ratio limits so that they're not as restrictive. I would urge eliminating parking minimums so that developers have the flexibility to use space and that there isn't that constraint on the buildings in their redevelopment. And generally to embrace other ways to achieve city objectives, as we heard Um, I want to congratulate the deputy mayor on being part of such a bold statement of aspiration for the city and a commitment to transformation in pursuit of that. Cities need to think about the future that they want and provide support for the people who are agents of change to get to that future. That could look like providing technical assistance and capacity building opportunities to expand the developers that are equipped to support what can be often complicated financial deals to redevelop downtown parcels. Not only can that provide greater number of developers who are enriching the competition for such opportunities, but provide more equitable access to those opportunities to people who may not resemble the traditional developers. Cities need to facilitate the development of units that are most needed when you're thinking about housing. Families and work-from-home professionals need more bedrooms. They need that space to provide for their families and their means of of making a living. So that supply needs to have sufficient bedrooms and provide, for example, space for child care that I know is a, a critical Objective of New York as well. They also, you know, I mentioned eliminating parking minimums. Units should not assume that there is going to be car ownership among the tenants or the residents in future units. That not only overlooks the highly connected, advantaged location that is typical of central business districts where transit is almost always readily available, but saddles occupants and developers with the cost of an unneeded amenity in parking. Finally, my current title is the Director of Climate Strategies. I'd be remiss in not taking a moment to talk about resilience and some of the environmental considerations brought in by my previous speakers. Think about this as future-proofing your central business district. Whether putting solar panels and energy efficiency measures into place are required or simply demanded by the market, they help to provide, for example, power backups in the case of power outages or lower energy costs for occupants of the units. They help to make buildings more resilient than the face of, for example, flooding that only stands to increase in the face of sea level rise. We heard about the push for reuse of buildings from an environmental perspective. The National Trust for Historic Preservations Research and Policy Lab has concluded that it can take eight to 80 years for new energy efficient buildings to overcome the negative climate change impacts that were created during the construction process. So that's not a small factor to consider as you contemplate the energy efficiency. Finally, I want to emphasize a point that has arisen in our conversation and that's the essential aspect of state city partnership in all of this. I don't know if it's fully appreciated just the degree to which cities are a creature of state government. Their latitude to act in ways that we've been calling for in this conversation is really only so far as it is allowed by state governments. States set the sources and the rules by which cities can raise revenue, by which they can use redevelopment tools such as zoning flexibility. And so that fiscal relationship and that partnership is really an essential aspect of redevelopment of downtowns and uh, states should recognize that their fortunes are tied up in these cities as well.
2: That's terrific, Amy. Let me ask you a question to get back to some of the themes that you were talking about with a little bit more specifics. And that is that cities and office owners are obviously under various regulatory regimes. What's the low hanging fruit to reduce the regulatory burden to be able to most easily? Take advantage of the need for housing and also the need to deal with all this vacant office space. And I'd like to turn that to all our panelists, but perhaps start with you, Annie.
6: I'd be happy to offer some thoughts. I think that creating housing through conversions is a different animal than creating housing from scratch, from whole cloth. And I think that there's an opportunity to enable that housing to be developed out of an existing building after all, perhaps as of right without complicated development reviews that bring discretion on a parcel by parcel basis. Perhaps there's an opportunity to exempt environmental reviews for situations of office conversion when the prior use is as benign as the subsequent use. So I'd suggest that there's a way for cities to reduce the regulatory hurdles that aren't as necessary. You know, we, we want to make sure that health and safety is protected. But what is actually required in order to ensure that protection in the case of a conversion to housing from office, for example.
2: That's very helpful. Thank you, Amy. Heather, you were talking about burdening with additional but very good goals, but perhaps that would stop us actually getting more housing. So what do you see? Is it as of right conversion possible across the country, that kind of immediate call to go forward and convert yes, i think ahead.
5: everyone understands the urgency of doing this but you have in many cities some very progressive city councils and it's been interesting someone made a comment to me in dc for example a lot of city council members were not on city council or in elected government during a prior recession and so i think the situation changes a little bit when you hit a little bit more of a tense financial situation and economic situation of people really having to prioritize what is the most important goal out of a slew of important goals and how can we advance as many of those goals as we want. That's kind of the discussion that we're starting to hear across the country and certainly in DC is, okay, we know we want to convert and spur a lot of these resident office to residential, but how many other priorities can go along with that? So I'll stop there. Thank you very much.
2: Very useful. So what do, you gave us the daunting economics. Do you have a highest level of regulatory burden that would be the first to reduce in your view of what would make this possible or just the economics too daunting and it's just not regulation, it's going to a tax incentive?
4: I think there's an intersection of the economics and the regulation in particular. The faster the regulation, the less time it takes to build. And so Literally, in this case, time is money. So if you could do you know, a, a building process that takes two years instead of four years, that's going to meaningfully improve the economics of these development projects. So what my co-panelists were mentioning as of right development, maybe suspension of FAR limits, suspension of the traditional Euler process, I think would all help to speed up this process tremendously.
1: Let me just throw in a question for the deputy mayor following that up. Zoning changes. There's been a push among some of the Midtown landlords in, in Manhattan, for example, in the garment district. You've had a lot of hotel construction in that neighborhood where my father had a, had a factory once upon a time. So we've got a, a form of residential development, but not really. A lot of those brown buildings are in Midtown. You know, you see other cities with post-industrial districts. How do you get the zoning changed so to allow these conversions?
3: It's two things. It's a matter of policy and it's a matter of politics. So interestingly for the M-Zones in Manhattan as part of the mayor's state of the city. And this is really after a number of really productive and positive conversations with the local council members who represent the districts in Manhattan. We're actually starting a neighborhood plan, a study of those areas with the idea of looking at the zoning for the M-Zones in Manhattan to see what types of changes need to be made in order to modernize. And that's the type of conversation which is both policy and politics across different areas of the city. It's always has to be a matter of balance, Bill, right? So it's we have to protect and encourage and grow industrial jobs and job centers, but make sure that our zoning allows for that to happen while ensuring that we have the tools and we are clearing the way from a land use perspective to address the housing crisis. Now, here's the good news is that despite what might be written in the press sometimes, and it's, it's always more entertaining, I think, to talk about where the battles are with local elected officials. This is a rare time, at least since I've been in public service, where there's extraordinary alignment, I would say, between the mayor of New York City, the city council, and the governor of New York. About needing to tackle these issues in a very urgent and courageous way. We might differ on the specific tactics, exactly what the timing needs to be, but I think everyone agrees that we can no longer postpone the types of actions that help propel the recovery and at the same time tackle a crisis that has for too long gone unabated.
1: May I ask a follow up question for for you and everybody? Because the issue came up. You know, we have just an absolute avalanche of federal funding for infrastructure in the infrastructure bill, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, you name the project, it probably has some possibilities. So how do you get some of this federal infrastructure money diverted or paneled rather into housing construction, especially this kind of housing construction? And that's for everybody, really. The deputy mayor, I'm sure you're watching this.
3: I'll start, and certainly happy to hear ideas from from the other panelists. We have to be as aggressive as possible with every source of funding—federal, state, otherwise—while leveraging private investment for all of the sources that you mentioned earlier. Bill, I think the way that we like to think about it isn't just how do you use that program for conversions, but when you think about what is needed in the city or in these districts to spur the recovery, it has to be in all of the above because it's not sufficient to just convert an office code, but you have to think about how to improve the infrastructure, whether it's transit infrastructure or public realm infrastructure in each of the neighborhoods, because it's that complete, the utilization of all of those tools that gets these places. If one believes that Given the choice that people have to work anywhere, these have to be places they want to be in, they want to live in, they want to work in. And so the investments using state, local, federal dollars to really bring the neighborhoods to the type of quality and dynamism that will make it a no brainer for people to want to live and work there. That's really the challenge that I know New York and so many other cities I'm sure are up to and are grappling with at the moment.
2: May I take this question and expand it a bit to the timing of the response? It sounds to me, and Bill, I address this to you as well, is that the accessing these funds is, is a matter of moving pretty quickly, even though the funds will be available for a number of years, having plans in place to focus them where the need is greatest. But on the other hand, realistically, rebuilding downtowns for housing is going to be a five, 10-year project. So what do folks see as the need to immediately act as opposed to put the plans in place and do it right and do it over time? Or both. Perhaps we can start with, um, Stan, your views on this.
4: Yeah, I mean, just to come back briefly to Bill's point, I think the you know I did some fairly careful reading of the Inflation Reduction Act provisions as they pertain to commercial real estate and and development, and unfortunately, there's sort of very little, very specific that is useful for office to apartment conversion. Although my reading of the bill is that there's a twenty two billion dollar pot of money under the EPA that is potentially usable for this. So I think some additional guidance that from the federal government that in fact. type of conversion projects would be possible under those rules i think would be very very helpful and then you know to your point susan i think if that money is sort of useful in the construction and design phase of the project which in my mind could happen fairly soon even if the construction itself and the lease up takes 4 or 5 years before that asset is built so i think you're absolutely right it's going to take 4 or 5 years even if we start today just before that new apartment building is finished and the whole conversion process in my mind is is sort of a two decade process i think of this as this transition as the sort of transition that bill was describing about you know his father you know where new york city went from a port and a manufacturing town to a modern service sector economy over the course of 30 years. I think we're sort of facing a similar industrial revolution, if you like, here for the next 20 years. So I think this will take time. But some of that money, I think, is available now and I think can be used for the construction phase sort of earlier rather than later.
2: Heather, so this take time aspect of it, are folks that you're interacting with in it for the long haul? Or is there a motivation right now? And of course, there must be to do some things quickly. How do you see this question of we have to do everything, but when?
5: Yeah, it's a good point, Susan. I would just say the key for moving quickly is to put a floor under the deterioration that many panelists have talked about on this call, whether it's the tax based deterioration as some of these buildings go unused or their values drop, or certainly the perception and the data around rising crime in some cities. In the downtown DC, we don't Necessarily see homicides up, but you do see a lot of petty crime up, a lot of small thefts, and just a lot more dirt and grime in the city and certain parts of the city that is not used, people are not used to. So you don't want people to sort of just think about these areas as no go areas you know, you want them to start seeing that there is transformation and there is revival going on and that there is kind of a hope. And a lot of urban planning, they talk about nodes of transformation. So once you get several buildings, you know, you get these certain corners of the actual area that you're looking at, start to transform, it builds, success builds on itself. So I think that's a lot of the uh, metric for urgency. I will say it's interesting you bring up infrastructure. As I talk to a lot of people, one of the biggest hindrances, as I hear. I I think the deputy mayor made a great point. A lot of developers say to me and investors that they're actually pleasantly surprised at how a city hall is willing to work with them right now, and and they, it's actually better environment than they've seen in years. Unfortunately, the financing is not necessarily better. But one of the biggest complaints I get is many cities, particularly large cities, have a separate department of transportation that reviews things like curb cuts, and uh, you know if you want to change the um, entrance to a building, whether you know to have that curb cut coming in like a hotel or a, a typical apartment might have, or where your drop-offs are going to be for you know Uber Eats and for your Amazon deliveries, these kinds of things can actually get very contentious very fast and can actually really um, impact whether somebody wants to spend a lot of money to convert a building. And so I've been surprised at how often various departments of transportation come up as a big hindrance right now.
2: Interesting. So cities have to up their game so that they can work with the private sector effectively because both sides do want to work together. So Amy, how do you see this putting a floor under deterioration? Great. Point Heather, how can that be done? Well, I, you know, I think that you know there are plenty
6: of examples. My own city of Boston, New York, San Francisco, being creating activation on the street that does dispel the idea that it's a no-go zone. That creates reasons for people to go downtown and enjoy a pop-up market or a concert or what have you. Making sure that there's public safety presence to ensure that the petty crime that might be more possible with fewer people on the street, enhance the sense of safety and security for those who are drawn downtown by city initiatives to bring life back to those streets.
2: So, um, Bill, I'm Bill, to throw this back to you for a moment to make sure we are not missing key questions and actually to take us out as we get to the top of the hour. But I do have a question, perhaps uh, particularly for Sand, and that is, how bad is this financial moment for, for financing sure. multifamily housing that otherwise could go forward?
4: You know, well, Susan, I think the the one of my biggest worries is availability of credit going forward, especially since so much of credit comes from regional banks, and regional banks are in a difficult spot right now. You know, as I outlined, I think they're going to face increasing regulatory pressure, supervision. And even if nothing else goes wrong in the in the financial markets from here on out, they are going to be very cr- prudent and they're going to tighten the screws on, on credit to commercial real estate. They all have been told by the Fed that they're overexposed to commercial real estate loans as it is. And on top of that, the cost of credit has gone up dramatically. That makes it hard and it's sort of Hard to see how availability, the free availability of credit for financing of commercial real estate development and redevelopment that we've gotten so used to in the last 15 years, how that continues to flow for the next several years.
2: But there are other sources of money. Perhaps this is time for funds to start working on this long-run opportunity. Back to you, Bill.
1: Thanks, Susan, and thanks, panelists. One quick lightning round question before we wrap up, like in one or two words. uh, Right now, what's the biggest obstacle... To making conversions, go ahead. And just very quickly,
5: Deputy Mayor, let's have a two-word answer.
3: I would say complacency, a lack of urgency about it.
5: Very good. Heather? I agree with that. I'd say financing. People have shown me their spreadsheets and something that was very viable a year ago just looks very, very different right now. Stan? high interest rates. And Amy?
1: Lack of flexibility. Well, you heard it here first. And... uh We're just about to the top of the hour. So that's it for another special briefing. I hate to say it, but it is. Thanks so much, Susan. And thanks to all of our panelists and to our great audience for joining us today. We'll be back on Thursday, April 27th, same time, same channel with another special briefing. Watch our websites and your email for details. Thanks, of course, also to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation, and special thanks to our production team at the Volcker Alliance, Graham Dowd, Noah and Ritzenberg, Idalis Foster, Steve Klieg, and Kate Nicoletti, and at Penn IUR, Amy Montgomery, Diana Lynn, and Arden Jordan.
0: You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local governments' finances in the wake of COVID 19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.